Happy semi-quincentennial. Yep, it's Paul Hub's 250th episode, and it feels like we've only just started. Well, maybe to us, anyway. This time we're talking about jobs and inflation. How come Americans seem to care only about the one that's bad right now? Then, results from our brand new poll in conjunction with the Center for Sports Communication here at Marist College as we approach the 50th anniversary of Title IX. That's the semi-centennial, if you're keeping score on that kind of thing. What do Americans think now about the impact of that landmark legislation that, among other things, changed women's sports forever? Finally, if you could travel anywhere in the U.S. to eat, where would you go? We're time-traveling to see what Americans said back in the 1950s. And you may be surprised at what cities made the list. Stick around. Oh, and happy 250th. And hi, everybody. Welcome to Poll Hub. I'm J.D. Dapper. I'm Barbara Carvalho. I'm Mary Griffith. And I'm Lee Marengoff. Happy anniversary, everybody. Happy anniversary. Should we sing? No. No, no <laughs> definitely not. <laughs> okay, that's one thing we've learned is not to sing on this podcast. Um, we're starting with the economy, which is uh, the biggest issue we've identified in lots of polls. Lots of other polls have identified that Americans' um, kind of top concern right now is the economy. What's so interesting about the economy is what is the economy? So when unemployment is high, that's the economy. Um, and we, uh, we poll on that and people are concerned because there's not enough jobs. Well, there's plenty of jobs right now. And Americans don't seem to care too much about that issue. What they care about is inflation because inflation is high. Um, so a, a new April, a new Gallup poll in April showed that 71% of Americans think this is a good time to find a quality job. That's three percent lower, three percentage points lower than the all-time high uh, in October. But uh, people are really concerned about inflation. So is this glass half full, glass half empty? Is this you can, you're concerned about the thing that's going wrong and the thing that's going right never gets credit? What, what does this what does this mean? What does this say? I think it's I think it's very real, and and um, I don't think it's just about you know what's good and what's bad. I mean, when um, jar it, it all it all uh, plays into the same issue, which is quality of life and and whether people are making ends meet and whether they feel uh, comfortable. Um, just because there are more jobs available after after the uh, you know two years of COVID and a lot of upheaval, um, I think that the the um, optimism that people had about jobs it's somewhat waning because of the fact we have such uh, significant inflation on things that everyone is purchasing. It makes those jobs, it makes those salaries, it makes those hourly wages not really stretch far enough. I mean, um, you know, when we when we look at inflation and we ask people uh, about that, I mean, uh, the price of the price, price of gas, the price of food uh, has uh, gone up very significantly. And in your day to day life, you're that's hitting you in the face, you know, every every time, uh, you know, you, you go to do something. Yeah, I, that was the point I was going to pick up on, Bart, because I think there's a qualitative difference between inflation and jobs. Um, and obviously, if you're unemployed or underemployed, uh, jobs is really, you know, front and central to your existence. Um, inflation is a, is a constant reminder, uh, and and the price at the at the pump is probably the biggest reminder of all that. So yeah, I broke six bucks a gallon yesterday. Well, I, the supermarket's no picnic. Now that's true, also, but uh, but uh, that's sometimes sticker shock when you check out. 
but the but you look at when you go to get get you look at that price and you see the price per gallon and you say like there's got to be a mistake here i mean things are just going up just dramatically and and i know there's you know talk of price gouging and all that um but nonetheless you see it at the pump and i think that's just a, a constant slap in the face uh and why inflation may just be so so damning right now politically well, but also I think we've seen it for a while. I mean, we, we've seen, you know, especially when we've done our index, we have those different uh, aspects of the economy, which we measure as part of the economic index and as part of the overall index. And we have seen that people's concerns about jobs really leveled off quite a while ago. Uh, and the Gallup poll that you mentioned too, Jay, 15% uh, of Americans think it's likely they will lose their jobs in the coming year compared to a record high of 25% at the height of the pandemic. And many Americans are optimistic that even if they were to lose their job, they'd be able to find a good one uh, similar to, to their current position. So I think that does speak to some of the stability that people feel, but as we've, as we've talked about, inflation is really, I think, a whole, whole different animal in terms of how we experience it every day. And I'd like to get your take, guys, on what's taken the Biden administration you know, so long. It seems to now you know, reach top of mind, top of the list. Um, but this, is, this has been going on for quite some time. Well, I think the problem for the uh, with the economy for any president is the president has very little control over the economy. You get the credit for when it goes well, and or, or some presidents argue you don't even do that, and uh, you don't get the credit, and you got all the blame when things go wrong, and yet you don't really have much uh, control over it. I think what's interesting right now is that the they they are jumping into this, and yeah, the, lots of Democrats have said that it's been they've been late to this. But they're jumping into it, and a little bit of this uh, is reflected in the way that the administration is talking about it. Is hey guys, can't we get a little credit for the jobs? It's exactly what we're talking about here. They're they're feeling like they're not getting credit for the good part of the economy; they're only getting blamed for the bad. But hey, that comes with the job. Um, I think it is an indication, as we've seen in a lot of things, that the Biden administration kind of—I don't want to paint too broad a brush here—but they seem, over the course of these uh, first couple of years, to be a little slow at responding to things in a public relations way. You know, and, and, and I don't want to overstate it, but they don't seem to be quite as quick on message as, say, the Clinton team was, uh, which was you know notorious for polling every single day practically, and for being very quick to uh, to get on messaging. They don't seem very uh, particularly quick at that. Thank you very much. Although quick, although quick during the Clinton administration was not as quick as it needs to be during the Biden administration. Yeah. Yeah. No. No. Right. It's a different it's a different world. Like, the pace is the pace is, is is so much different, and the uh, well, I think the Biden team, um, you know, is very obsessed with kind of like the deliberations between the White House and Congress, and they kind of sometimes forget the messaging part that uh, we're all watching from from a distant, and uh, and and I think you know he has to show the ability to look around the corner and see what's coming. I think they did that with Ukraine. I think he was much more you know rounding up NATO, talking about Putin. Uh, talking about what we would do, what we wouldn't do. Uh, I mean, I think he, he sort of telegraphed that. When it comes to inflation, I don't know what they got in mind. I mean, uh, you know, they, they feel like, I feel like they just took, they just noticed almost. Yeah, but I have a question about that. Um, inflation is actually higher in other parts of the world. Uh, in, in Europe, it's at its highest point. It's, it's a couple points higher than it is here. 
uh, and it's at the highest point in in uh, a generation. Is there a benefit in trying to say, hey, we're not in this alone, and it's not just the U.S. It's not my fault because not just the U.S. It's the whole world. Is that? I mean, it's, that seems like that might be effective. No, maybe. I don't know. I think any kind of messaging might be effective. <laughs> <laughs> I was thinking. I was thinking. Have they poll tested that? I mean, is that what they're doing some of? Like they don't have to live by the polls, but they sure should know where public public is. That might be an interesting uh, take. Um, you may have uh, created a you know a five point swing in his approval rating just by that. But even if you want to, if you even if you want to take inflation aside, I mean, the, the president's numbers on the economy and whether people think he's doing a good job is tanked ages ago. Um, so that in itself should have been a wake up call. Um, and uh, again, I, I, it's they're just very last century, and I think that the uh, the the, the approach to Ukraine was something where there was a much greater comfort level um, in the administration, and perhaps the president himself. Um, there was more of a blueprint, uh, and as you say, Jay, this is this is tough because presidents don't necessarily have any way of solving this these problems, especially before the midterm elections. Barb, you mentioned last century. Well, at the end of this month, the nation will commemorate 50 years since the passage of Title IX, which was the groundbreaking legislation that banned discrimination on the basis of sex in, um, in education and opened the playing field for women in sports. And of course, we always like to have our finger on the pulse of Americans' attitudes on major issues. And so we, along with the Center for Sports Communication at Marist College, polled on Americans' perceptions of this, um, uh, this legislation half a century later. And I'm very happy to have with us here today Stephanie Calvano, who is our Director of Data and Technology at uh, the Marist Poll, who is also my partner in crime on this topic. Uh, so Steph, welcome. Thanks for having me. It's our pleasure. So Steph, as we went through the numbers, and nobody knows these numbers better than you, one thing that really le uh, leaped out at me was that this piece of legislation is one that Americans perceive to have a powerful punch with very little name recognition. Can you share a little bit more about that? Yeah, uh, it was one of the more surprising things that we found. Um, while the impressions of Title IX are generally favorable, um, we did find that 43% of Americans, including 40% of sports fans, say that they've never heard of Title IX. And then an additional 23% of adults nationally say they've heard of it, but don't have an impression of the legislation. So that's about two thirds saying that they either haven't heard of it or don't know enough to weigh in on it. Um, but that does shift when we gave a brief characterization of it. Yeah, so talk to us a little bit about that. Uh, what happens when we do provide a characterization of the legislation? Are Americans mostly positive, mostly negative on the impact of Title IX? Yeah, after the brief description of the legislation, um, Americans' opinions of Title IX are mostly positive, uh, you know, across the board. Um, they think that... Um, the impact on both women's and men's opportunities for sports are positive. 65% um, of Americans say that Title IX's overall impact on women's sports opportunities has been mostly positive. And similarly, 63% report that Title IX has had a positive impact on men's sports opportunities. Um, and then overall, just a general impression of Title IX's impact on high school and college athletics we see 66% of adults, um, including 76% of those who've heard of Title IX, 
saying that that impact has been positive. Yeah, you know, I thought that it was really interesting to see that um, both men and women view the positive effect of Title IX in all aspects of sports, although men are a little bit more likely than women to say that the legislation had uh, an impact on uh, women's opportunities in sports. But Barb, I know you were going to jump in. Well, you know, one of the things that um, I, I saw in the data, and I was kind of wanted to get your take on it, was the difference in generations. It seemed like generations born after Title IX were more familiar with the legislation than the generations uh, that were born before it. Is, uh, is this an experience thing or do you have some other insights? Yeah, that is correct. Um, you know, the, the Gen Z millennial generation who's often accused of being out of touch um, was more aware of the Title IX legislation than older generations. Um, and look, they're the generations that are going to be the decision makers and driving policy in the future. Millennials are not 18 year old kids anymore. You know, the eldest millennials are in their forties or approaching their forties. Um, so they're in positions to be decision makers and policy makers, and they will be the ones driving it. So it is interesting that they are the most engaged. They are also the generation who is most apt to say that we need change when it comes to the legislation, whether it be a more strict enforcement of the Title IX legislation or a tougher law being passed um, in general. Yeah, but I would I would comment on this generally uh, as as a sports fan, you know, the sort of like to just you know expand the analogy a little bit, you know, build it and they will come. I think show it and they will watch, and I think that we have slowly gotten to the point where women's sports are now seen more uh they're followed more the women's soccer uh team yeah they're gonna get paid more and they might get yet they're gonna get paid more but they also have become more uh celebratorious in their own right as 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 figures in the sports world a uh, women's basketball i may have made up a word there but anyway women's basketball um the the leaders in that at, at a college level and now you know i think the pros have gotten you know a footing uh into the sports scene uh, more and more um you know there's nothing like a some tv contracts to you know provide the kinds of exposure and and uh that just shows to all these talents uh as as you know good as they are and as as impressive as they are Exposure is certainly important. And Lee, if I could just pick up, you mentioned the women's uh, soccer team. I do just want to say kudos to the men's national soccer team as well. Um, they had to agree to that equal distribution of prize money, um, and they did. So it just shows that whether it's a fight for equality on the gender front or any other front, um, it, it does take not just the group affected fighting for change, it, it does mean that everybody has to be involved in the fight. And I want to pick up on the, um, the observation about generation, because we did also ask a couple of questions about transgender athletes and their access and ability um, in terms of laws and, and rules to be allowed to play on the team, which they identify with their card current gender identity. And what we see in terms of that question is that the younger generations are much more accepting of transgender athletes being permitted to play on a team that they um, identify with. 
And I think that really when we look ahead to the future, and Steph, you mentioned that the younger generations are the ones who are going to be picking up this torch um, and you know, moving forward with the idea of ideas encapsulated in Title IX, that really be that really may well be where the debate is moving and the conversation is moving. Um, again, uh, there is a lot uh, is a greater acceptability among younger Americans generationally, and also women are much more likely than men to uh, feel that that should be permitted and that should be allowed. Although that's not what the consensus is uh, among Americans. Is, no. No, um, many Americans feel that uh, that transgender athletes should only play on teams that reflect their gender at birth. Well, I think this generational difference that, that, that several of you have alluded to at different times uh, really has to do with you know, the, the issue of tolerance. And we see you know, younger people uh, you know, more tolerant about lots of things uh, that are going on in our society. And I think sports is certainly one. Um, what was the sport, though? I'm, I'm trying to remember recently, uh, maybe going back just a couple of years, uh, where the facilities for the women athletes were, was that the Olympics or? March Madness. Uh, yeah. It was March Madness. Oh, okay. oh, March Madness. And, and the, the facilities were just so inferior. And, and But what was interesting about that was when they came to light again, when people saw what the differences were, that became an outrage. And, uh, and that seemed to be inequitable. So I think the title not impact has been very significant, uh, even if we don't necessarily credit that specific legislation for having made these, you know, huge landmark changes. So is the is the issue uh, with trans athletes, is this really the next battle for Title IX or is that not the right place? Oh, I think we're going to have to just wait and see where public opinion lies and in future polls. You know, as we tend to see with many different um, issues uh, that are within public debate, um, acceptability comes with, with time. And so we'll be keeping track of those numbers. Okay, switching gears, we're going to go to a, a topic that's near and dear to all of our hearts. And that's to do with food and a poll that Gallup did in the 1950s, going back in time. I'm the only person here who can really speak to when this poll was done. I was an infant, but I do remember the, the 50s very well. Um, but anyway, the question they asked uh, had to do with food and which city could claim, you know, number one as their favorite place to eat and to and the best food. And well, here we go. New York, number one at 26%. So no surprise. No bravo surprise. For, bravo for New York. Uh, and that's why we love New York. Uh, that came in later, of course. Uh, second place was don't know at 25, which I think is <laughs> west of New York. I'm not quite sure where that is. <laughs> On that famous New Yorker map. Yeah, it's, that's right. you know, the rest of the country. Yeah. yeah. It's, and, <laughs> There's other other cities that uh, that rank up uh, with, with that, uh, and um, I think one of the things that we found interesting in this uh, is, was also the uh, just a lot of cities that you might not think of as being food capital of the world, uh, like Gary, Indiana, and Worcester, Massachusetts, where I spent four years of my life, and I can speak to that being not the food capital of the world, uh, but the uh, uh, you know getting some. Uh, getting some response here in this national survey, which may have to do more of that. Let's talk about the food aspect though, first. Well, you know, I, I, you know, it, I, I, I looked at this and um, I, I looked at the question first before looking at the answers. Um, and though I am, you know, a, a New Yorker, you know, through and through um, the first, the first uh, city that actually popped into my head was New Orleans uh, for Mardi Gras. 
So uh, I've never been to New Orleans for Mardi Gras, but they must have a really good marketing campaign because uh, that was that was what I what I thought of. So it's not necessarily just, you know, where, you know, where you've been, but, you know, what, what you think of. And New York is uh, it depends what kind of food you're thinking of, too. Any food, uh, any food is available in New York. You can go, uh, you know, 500 yards and get, you know, various options. So it's, it's uh, that's that's what you deserve. In 1956, though, I think the lim- there may be some more limitations, right? In 1956, I don't think you could get like Cambodian on one quarter and and like you know, Sri Lankan on another corner. So, but even then, New York had that. What I what fascinated me here was the cities that got listed that you wouldn't think of, like um, oh uh, Detroit uh, or mm. uh, Milwaukee, uh, I guess for the brats maybe, um, or Omaha got one percent. But then, Steph, you had an idea about why that would be because the way this poll was done back in 1956. Yeah, this poll was actually conducted uh, using face-to-face interviews, uh, which was not an uncommon methodology years ago. Um, But uh, it may just be that people were responding with their hometown or a city proximate to their hometown. So that could be the the votes for... uh, what we may not think of as the the food capitals. Um, On the New York front, I will say, and I may be biased as a New Yorker, but uh, I immediately think of a hot dog at the ballpark, a slice of pizza, or a good old New York bagel. Yeah, yeah. The uh, and what's this? Did someone say before this was also open ended? So that have to do with uh, you know getting a chance to select your hometown. Also, I found fascinating the one percent from Omaha. That's where Gallup was based, right? So they uh, probably <laughs> probably someone said, just not, "I don't know, I don't know." Well, if I have to, if I have to, I'll go. Well, I, I I must say I was surprised with the twenty five percent that couldn't come up with a large city. <laughs> well, this is before fast food. Uh, you know, markets were just everywhere. So if if push comes to shove, you go with McDonald's or you go with something. You know, you, you got something else to jump into your mind. Well, we do know sometimes a don't know answer could just be a conflict of do I do I say New York or do I say Boston? There you uh, go. There you go. So we've uncovered some poll methods that are shown through what was a fun fact. Just so nice to be educational too. And happy 250th, everybody. Yes, indeedy. That'll do it for this edition of Poll Hub. Poll Hub is a production of the Marist Poll at Marist College in Poughkeepsie, New York. Mary Griffith is our executive producer. Casey Schaff is our production supervisor. If you'd like to learn more about polling and survey science, check out the Marist Poll Academy our free online learning portal. If you have questions for us, tweet them directly to at Marist Poll. Remember, you can always tell your smart speaker to play Poll Hub, and with any luck, it will cooperate. Finally, wherever you listen to Poll Hub, there is a subscribe button. Click it, and the latest episode will be ready for you in your podcasting app as soon as we release it. We'll see you next time. <music>